0: Let me once more say good morning to all of you, and David, thank you for those songs. Um, The warning about we may not sing it like it was written was kind of wasted on me because I don't think I've ever sung a song like it was written, so uh, maybe there's other people in the audience that are like me. It is camp season, um, so I want to continue to ask you to pray for all the camp sessions that are going on. Um, We had a good report from the first session, things went well, the second session is starting actually today with registration. A lot of our people are already up there. We'll be up there all this week, so we'll be praying for them. Also, our high school group got back from Kadish from Abilene, yesterday. And Anthony turned around this morning and is taking a middle school group back to Impulse for that camp session there as well. So a lot of things going on, a lot of things that are very impactful in the lives of our children. So we'll be in prayer for those sessions, if you will. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to ask your blessings on our camp sessions for all those who are campers there, all those who are teaching, who are in kitchens, who are working in all the different ways to to allow these things to happen. And Father, we know that you are working powerfully through those sessions and through the people who are there. Father, we know that lives will be impacted and lives will be changed as a result of what's taking place. And Father, I just pray that you'll continue to watch over those who are traveling to and from and keep them safe, watch over them as well. And Father, we look forward to the changes that will take place in us and in our church and our community as a result of what goes on at camp. Thank you for all of those opportunities. And Father, we thank you for this time that we have to be together this morning to study your word, Father, to spend more time talking about how we can be disciples of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, how we can walk in his steps and we can come to reflect his nature and his character and that our actions will be like his actions and our words will be like his words. Father, bless this time that we have together and we pray, Father, that as a result of what takes place here this morning, that your name will be glorified and that others will come to know your son, Jesus Christ, and will also come to know you. We pray this through Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So we are continuing with our sermon series, Face-to-Face with Jesus. We've been looking at various face-to-face encounters that people have had with Jesus. And we're looking at how their lives were impacted and how their lives were changed as a result of those encounters. But more importantly, we're looking at those stories with an eye to figure out how we should live as a result of those stories, how our lives should be changed as a result of those interactions that people had with Jesus. So far in this series, we've done a variety of things. We've, we've watched as Jesus spent time with his apostles and specifically with Peter, and as they explored the notion of identity and In that story, we learned that who we say Jesus is very much defines who we are and very much determines what kind of lives we're going to live as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. And then we looked on as John the Baptist. I called him John the Troublemaker, baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And we saw the Spirit descend on Jesus, and we heard God speak. And through that encounter, we learned that John's message of repentance and John's message of forgiveness and baptism is God's message and it should also be our message. And then in our third week we stood up on a rooftop with some some men who had brought their paralyzed friend to be in the presence of Jesus so that he could be healed of his paralysis. And through that interaction we learned that we're all paralyzed before God unless we have come into the forgiving and the healing presence of Jesus Christ. Then we observed Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler, but in this story, the more important fact is that he was a desperate dad, a dad who had a 12-year-old daughter who was about to die and came to Jesus so that he could come and heal his daughter. And we watched as a woman who had been suffering for 12 years interrupted the journey to Jairus' daughter as she reached out to Jesus seeking his healing power. And we learned as Jesus healed the unclean woman, as he brought to life the unclean girl, that Jesus' ministry was all about cleansing, all about healing, all about restoration. Then our fifth week we spent at a dinner party. A dinner party at a Pharisee's house. His name was Simon. And at that party we watched as a woman came out of the shadows and she behaved in a way that was very inappropriate for a dinner party. Her behavior was emotional and it was extravagant and it was uncontrolled. But that very behavior that is inappropriate for a dinner party we saw is exactly appropriate for us as we enter into the healing presence of Jesus Christ. And then we listened as Nicodemus had a very confusing conversation with Jesus. That conversation that Scott talked about, about rebirth and about, the, about water and about the spirit And in that, we learned that Jesus lived and he died and he lives again to bring people like Nicodemus, but also people like you and me, out of the darkness of sin and into his light. And then last week, we took a journey and we traveled into Samaria. And we watched a really fascinating interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And there we learned that ethnic, gender, religious, and moral gaps between us and others, should never prevent the offer of Jesus' life-giving water. And then this week, we're going to see what happens when Jesus' journey from Jericho to Jerusalem is interrupted by a loud and persistent cry for help. But before we look at that encounter, I want us to spend a few minutes providing some background and some context to help us fully engage in today's story. And most of the background and most of the context we'll explore is directly related to Jesus' parable that was just read. What we have come to know as the Good Samaritan parable. It's a parable where Jesus teaches what it looks like to actually love your neighbor. It's a parable that, interestingly enough, is set on the very road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, that Jesus is about to travel in today's story. It's a parable that's probably the best-known parable that Jesus ever told. It's the most familiar parable that Jesus ever told. Even people with very little knowledge of Jesus and very little knowledge of the Bible know at least the basic outline of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's that familiarity that I'm afraid has led us to not always appreciate the parable fully. I think back to how I've always understood the parable, and I think my understanding has been pretty much the same since I was about nine years old. And I think because of that, I've missed the full impact of this parable. At nine years old, I understood the story somewhat this way. There was a good man who was traveling on a road, and some bad men came and beat him up and left him for dead. And then two more bad men came along and had a chance to help him, but because they were bad men, they just passed on by. But fortunately, there was a good man who came by. But the twist in the story was that this good man was a person that people would think was going to be bad, but actually turned out to be good, and he did good things for the man. So he stopped and he helped. And we learned that from that parable that that's what neighbors do. Neighbors help people who are in need. So from that, I also learned that I should have comfort in this because I knew I was a good person. And because I was a good person, I identified with the Samaritan, with the good Samaritan, not with the bad priest or with the bad Levite. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus was really teaching in the parable. And I believe what he's teaching makes me a lot more uncomfortable because when I really dig into what he's teaching, I think that I have to see myself more in the priest and more in the Levite. And I see myself in the Samaritan. See, I think the parable is really about three good men. Two good men, the priest and the Levite, who choose to avoid doing the right thing. And another good man, the Samaritan, who chooses to do the right thing, chooses to do the good thing. It's about two good men who choose to withhold love. They choose to withhold compassion for a suffering person, and about one good person who chooses to extend love and chooses to extend compassion to a suffering person. And when I'm honest with myself and when I'm honest with you, I have to acknowledge that many times I have looked the other way from my brothers and sisters when I know that they're suffering. There's many times that I've crossed to the other side to avoid having to deal with brothers and sisters that I know are suffering. There's many times that I haven't acted on what I know I should do for brothers and sisters who are suffering. I have to admit that all too often, I have a lot more in common with a priest and the Levite than I do with the Samaritan. And I suspect that I'm not the only one here today who feels that same way. So the question of the parable, I think, is really this. Why do good people, good people like you and me, good people like the priest and the Levite, why do good people often avoid doing good things? Well, I think there are many reasons why good people avoid doing good things. But I believe the primary reason why we avoid doing good things for our brothers and sisters is we have an unwillingness to be interrupted. An unwillingness to have our schedules altered. An unwillingness to add something else to our already full plates. There's a fascinating experiment that was done back in the 70s. Appropriately, it's named the From Jerusalem to Jericho Study. I've mentioned this study before and I'll probably mention it again because it bears very much on many biblical topics. It illustrates what we're talking about here. I'm calling it the tyranny of time. The tyranny of time, the way that our schedules and our agendas and our general busyness has a tendency to take control of our actions, has a tendency to take control of our decisions. And the tyranny of time leads good people, good people like you and me, to avoid doing good things. In this study, the Jerusalem to Jericho study, they were working with seminary students Religious people. People who are preparing for ministry careers. And they recruited some of them so that they could study what factors affect helping behavior in emergency situations. So here's the setup. They would take the students and they would have them in one building. And they would tell them that they were going to deliver a talk in yet a different building. And they had to walk a certain path to get to that building. And on that path, they had a confederate. They had a person who was dressed shabbily who would be beside the path, who would be moaning and doubled over next to the path in obvious pain and discomfort. And the researchers, the experiments, observed and watched to see who would actually stop and ask if they could help in any way. And as a twist in the experiment, one half of the students were told they needed to prepare a talk about the Good Samaritan parable. So they did preparation to go and give a talk about being a Good Samaritan. And the other half of the students were just going to give a talk about ministry careers. Nothing having to do with helping. And they thought that the the students who were prepared to talk about the Good Samaritan would be the ones who would stop and help. And those who were talking about ministry careers might not. But that had no difference on who stopped and helped. Their preparation had no difference at all. There was only one thing that had any difference on who stopped and helped. And that one thing was time. It was time, specifically how much time the students were told that they had before they had to get over and give their talk. One-third of the students, we'll call them the high hurry group, were told that they were already late for their talk, and they better rush over right now to give their talk. Another third we'll call the medium hurry group. They were told that everything was ready for their talk, and they probably should leave now and make their way over there. And then the third group, a third of the students were the low hurry group. They were told that it was still a while before they'd be ready for the talk and they might as well leave now, but there was no rush at all to get over to the other building. And then they observed the students to see who would stop and offer help. 10% of the high hurry group stopped to offer help. 45% of the medium hurry group stopped to offer help. And 63% of the low hurry group, stopped to offer help. Why do good people avoid doing good things for others? Oftentimes it's because they're in a hurry, because they don't feel they have time, because they have something else that seems more important or more urgent to do. And that leads us in to today's story. It leads us into Jesus as he starts his long and difficult journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. And we need to keep in mind as we go into the story that life for Jesus leading up to this moment has been a hectic whirlwind. He's been teaching and he's been healing and he's been performing mighty and powerful acts. It's also been a dizzying time, a dizzying time of conflict and opposition and confrontation. And we also need to understand that Jesus is well aware that his time on earth is coming to an end. He knows as he starts down the road towards Jerusalem that he's heading to his own death on the cross. So Jesus has every reason to be in a hurry. He has every reason to be preoccupied. He has every reason to be completely focused on what faces him at the end of the road. So as we enter our text for today, I want us to be looking for the answer to two important questions. Two important questions about Jesus. The first question is this. Having just declared his intent to give his life as a ransom for many, and on his way to Jerusalem and the cross, where he will give his life for all of mankind, will Jesus have time for the needs of one? Will Jesus have time for the needs of an individual? Will he have time for the needs of one hurting person? The second question is related to the first, and it's, is Jesus' compassion personal? In other words, does Jesus care about all of mankind, or does he also care about individual women and individual men and individual girls and individual boys? So as we read the text, let's look for the answers to those questions and more as we see Bartimaeus come face to face with Jesus. We're in Mark chapter 10, and I'll start reading with verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. As we read this scene, we should be immediately reminded of an earlier face-to-face encounter with Jesus. We remember Jesus hurrying to the bedside of the terminally ill girl, only to have his journey interrupted by a hemorrhaging woman as she reached out from the crowd to touch Jesus and receive his healing. Well, this time it's Bartimaeus who interrupts Jesus' journey. And he does it when out of the crowd he calls for Jesus' help. But he's also very different from the suffering woman. She did everything in her power to keep from making a scene, she did her best to remain anonymous. But this suffering man, Bartimaeus, does everything he can to make sure he's noticed. He shouts. He refuses to be silenced. He makes a scene. He draws attention to himself and to his plight. And notice that his plea to Jesus is a personal plea. It isn't Jesus be merciful. It's Jesus have mercy on me. Jesus help me. We also notice that the, the crowd has a plea. But their plea isn't for Jesus. Their plea is for Bartimaeus. And their plea is that he just be quiet. It's an impersonal plea. Bartimaeus, be quiet. Zip it. Stop making such a spectacle of yourself. An impersonal plea. And it's impersonal in the true meaning of impersonal. You see, the crowd lacks compassion for Bartimaeus. They lack warmth toward Bartimaeus they don't see Bartimaeus as a person. They don't see him as a person in need of help. But Jesus has a different view. The crowd is blind to who Bartimaeus really is. They see him as a time-consuming nuisance who's interrupting Jesus' important journey and his important plans. But Jesus sees the blind man for who he really is. He's a suffering person reaching out in faith looking for help. So Jesus sees a real person with real needs. And when he sees that real person with real needs, he asks a personal question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And when he asks that question, Jesus answers for us the two questions that we were asking as we went into this scripture. And the answers are yes, yes. Yes, Jesus, even in the midst of a dizzying whirlwind of events, even as he resolutely moves towards Jerusalem, and he's going to face trial, and he's going to face torture, and he's going to face death. He's going to do that all for the sake of all mankind. But yes, Jesus, even in the midst of all of that, has time to address the needs of one individual hurting person. Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do? To do for you. And yes, Jesus' question shows that his compassion is personal. He cares about Bartimaeus as a person. He has compassion for Bartimaeus's unique, his personal suffering. And this shouldn't at all surprise us, because Jesus' actions are completely consistent. He's acting in exactly the way we would expect him to because it's exactly the way he has always acted. He's always reached out in every situation to every person in need who calls on him. Even when it appears to others that they're a time-consuming interruption, Jesus always loves his neighbor. Even when that neighbor is a blind beggar interrupting a trip to the most important event The world has ever experienced. So Bartimaeus, we read in the story, is forever changed by Jesus' compassionate, by Jesus' personal, by his face-to-face response. Bartimaeus is healed, and he follows, he joins Jesus' journey. So Bartimaeus is changed by this encounter. But the question for us really is this, will we be changed by Bartimaeus' encounter with Jesus? What will we learn from Jesus' compassionate response to Bartimaeus? Well, let me suggest several things that I hope that we can all take away from Bartimaeus' encounter with Jesus. The first is this. We should learn that our brothers and sisters aren't time-consuming interruptions. Our brothers and sisters are children of God. We as disciples of Jesus Christ can't be blind to the needs of those among us who are hurting. Because we're responsible for bringing God's compassion and comfort to each other. That's our responsibility. Because in the midst of pain, people are looking for answers. And the main answer that they're looking for in the church as disciples of Jesus Christ is this. Does God care about me? That's their very personal question. Does God care about me? I know as disciples of Jesus Christ, we all all of us here intellectually know the answer to that. Of course God cares about us. We know that God cares about us. But for people who are in the midst of suffering, when you're suffering from the loss of a loved one, or suffering from the loss of your health, or the loss of a relationship, or the loss of your job. What do we want to know? We want to know that God cares about us individually and personally. We need to know that God cares about us, and we need to feel it. Not just know it, but feel it tangibly and emotionally that God cares about us. And I believe that the way God personally replies to that very personal question does God care about me? I believe that the reply to that comes from the actions of us. It comes from the actions of Jesus' disciples. It comes when we hear the question from our brothers and sisters. When we hear them say, does God care about me? And we respond to their suffering. It's the actions of God's people that lets us know and not only know but feel tangibly, and emotionally that God cares about us. But as we strive to respond to each other's suffering, we need to be aware that the question, does God care about me, doesn't always come at the same volume. It's not always spoken in the same way. It's not always heard in the same way. See, some of us, when we're suffering, are like the woman who interrupted Jesus' journey to the dying girl's bedside. Some of us don't say a word. Some of us stay in the background. Some of us may only tentatively reach out for help. And because of that, we're easy to overlook. Our suffering is easy to miss. But our suffering is no less intense. And our questions are no less profound than those who suffer like Bartimaeus in a very different way. Bartimaeus didn't mind letting people know about his suffering. Bartimaeus responds to his suffering in a very public, a very vocal way. But both of those ways of suffering are valid ways of suffering. If we're not careful, we won't respond in compassion to those who keep quiet, nor respond in compassion to those who are very vocal about their suffering. It's easy to dismiss the signs of those who are suffering loudly and just want them to be quiet just like the crowd that surrounded Jesus wanted. But it's also easy to miss those who are suffering quietly, to be blind to the fact that they are suffering. So we must watch and listen carefully for the signs of suffering among us who suffer silently but also take seriously the persistent and obvious signs of suffering offered by our brothers and sisters. Because everybody, everybody among us who is suffering is in need of the compassionate response that can only come from their church family, that can only come from their brothers and sisters in Christ. And to respond compassionately, what must we do? Well, we first must overcome a couple of the worst human tendencies that we have. The tendencies that we have when we encounter people who are suffering. If you're like me, you have a tendency to want to try and answer the questions of someone who's answering. is someone who is suffering. We have a tendency also to want to fix what people are suffering with. We want to offer solutions to their suffering. But that's really not what we should do. We shouldn't be trying to answer questions that we really don't know the answers to. And we shouldn't be trying to fix things that aren't in our power to fix. So what is the most compassionate response to our brothers and sisters who are suffering? Well, it doesn't try to answer why. And it doesn't attempt to offer a solution to the problem. Instead, what compassion looks like, what compassion does, it acts in faithful and it acts in sacrificial love. Compassion comes alongside in empathy. Compassion offers kind words and it offers gentle hugs. Compassion sends cards and makes phone calls that say, I was just thinking of you. It doesn't just say I care. It shows that we care. And it shows we care by being interruptible. Because people who are suffering in our midst don't interrupt what is important, they remind us of what really is important. People are important. Our brothers and sisters are important. Not our schedules, not our agendas. And what is important is that God cares deeply. God cares compassionately. God cares personally for each of his children. And as his children, we will demonstrate God's care and love and compassion for each other. We'll do that at all times. do that at all places. We'll do that in all circumstances, especially when our brothers and sisters are suffering. So I want to end fairly simply. I don't want to end with just three questions. Three questions I want all of us to consider as we leave here today in light of the Good Samaritan story and also in light of Bartimaeus's story. The first question is this. Do we, do I, do you, have the time for the needs of hurting people? Put differently, are we interruptible? Am I interruptible? Are you interruptible? The second question I want to leave us with is, this, is our compassion personal? Not intellectual compassion, not general compassion, not distant compassion, but personal compassion. Do we have face-to-face compassion? Do we have intimate compassion? Do we have involved compassion? And final question, are we willing to avoid the desire to fix and the desire to explain and instead choose to love and then let God heal? Are we willing to leave behind our desires to fix and explain and instead choose to just love and let God heal? I want you to know this and have no doubts about this at all. God will heal if we will love, because we're good people. We are good people, but let's not avoid doing good for each other in the midst of each other's suffering. So if you're here this morning, if you're this morning and you're suffering, won't you give us a, a chance, an opportunity to respond compassionately to your pain? Because that's what we would like to do. You may be like Bartimaeus. You may be comfortable walking to the front and letting us know that you are in pain. And if you're comfortable doing that, we would invite you to do so. Because we're going to stand up and sing a song. And that's a good way to let us know that you are suffering. But you may be more like the suffering woman. You may be uncomfortable walking to the front. We also have a way for you to let us know that you're suffering. You can walk to the back as we sing this song. You can make your way to room 104. And there's some people back in the back that will let you know where that is. There'll just be two men in there, two of our elders, who would like to talk to you about the compassionate love of Jesus Christ. Whatever your needs are, won't you let us know while we stand and while we sing this song together?